if you look to the history, if you look at family values evangelicalism, family values politics, which is what I do in this book, I came to see that really at the heart of family values politics is uh, white patriarchal authority. Welcome to Holy Heretics, Losing Religion and Finding Jesus from the Sophia Society. We're your hosts, Melanie and Gary Allen. And today we have the distinct privilege of talking to Dr. Kristen Cobas Dumay, whose book, Jesus and John Wayne, How White Evangelicals Corrupted a Faith and Fractured a Nation, we have quoted multiple times in past episodes. She is professor of history and gender studies at Calvin University. She holds a PhD from the University of Notre Dame, and her research focuses on the intersection of gender, religion, and politics. She has written for The Washington Post, NBC News, and Christianity Today, among many others. And she's been interviewed on multiple outlets, including NPR, the BBC, and the AP. So welcome, Dr. Dumay. We are so honored to have you here today. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here with you. So, Dr. Dumay, I, I just love the backstory for what motivated you to write the book, because I'm guessing that your research uh, predates Trumpism. Is that correct? It does. It goes way back, more than 15 years, actually. And uh, I owe this to my students. I was a new professor at Calvin University at the time. It was still Calvin College back then. And I had just taught a class on U.S. history. Uh, in which I introduced students to the concept of masculinity in history through the person of Teddy Roosevelt. And I showed my students how masculinity was about more than just personal choices, but it was linked to bigger questions of American power and empire. And uh, when I wrapped up that lecture, a couple of guys from the class came up to me afterwards and said, uh, Professor Dumay, uh, there's this book that you have to read. And that book was John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> So this is back in 2005 or 2006. So the book had been out since 2001. It was, you know, hugely, hugely popular. Everybody was reading it, you know, in, in dorm groups, in church Bible studies. It was everywhere. It would go on to sell more than 4 million copies. And uh, I'd heard all about the book, hadn't really bothered to read it, but I, I took their advice and I opened it up and I saw exactly what they meant. Right? The book opens with a quote from Teddy Roosevelt and then goes on to sketch a very militant and militaristic conception of quote unquote Christian masculinity. So God is a warrior God and every man is made in his image. Every man has a battle to fight. Uh, so this was 2005 or 2006, early years of the Iraq war. And as I was reading this uh, militant conception of, of Christian manhood, I was also looking at survey data coming in that white evangelicals were far and away more likely to support the Iraq war, support preemptive war, uh, to condone the use of torture. And I just asked, really, what does, what does one thing have to do with the other? And mm. uh, that really kind of started this research. For a time, I, I set the project aside. I had other things going on. And I was also um, kind of... Um, uh, had this nagging question of, uh, well, first of all, what I was uncovering was really disturbing. It was deeply misogynistic, um, seemed really anti-biblical to me, um, and you know, militant. And um, and then I had this question of, is this mainstream evangelicalism or is this fringe? I knew it was enormously popular, but it just seemed so extreme. I wasn't mm. quite sure how to reconcile that. And so I, I set the project aside for a time. I still paid attention uh, to these questions, to some of these figures. I watched as one after another um, man who had been promoting militant Christian manhood became embroiled in scandal in ensuing years. Uh, and then it was really in fall of 2016. Uh, in the weeks after the Access Hollywood tape released, and we saw evangelicals continue to support Donald Trump, that I, I decided to dust off the old research and uh, ended up writing Jesus and John Wayne. Wow. Well, I think your book is so timely and needed uh, because of what we have been seeing over the last four or five years, um, which is interesting since you did start it way before Donald Trump ever even thought about becoming president. Um, and I, I, it really provides an honest, but also scathing and I would say discouraging account of the white conservative movement over the last 
60 years or so. And then I feel like the culmination of that, at least so far, has been that evangelical support of Donald Trump. And then so one thing that I I found interesting is you show that the evangelical evangelicals didn't betray their values in voting for Trump. They they followed their values in voting for him. He is the personification of what they value. Can you explain how how that happened, especially when like I look at the Bible and you said you look at the Bible and that doesn't seem like those should be our values how how did we get to that point? Yeah, you know, when, when we saw growing numbers of evangelicals, white evangelicals uh, supporting Trump in 2015 already and then in 2016, that, that was kind of the narrative of uh, how could, quote unquote, family values evangelicals support a man like Donald Trump, right, who did not appear to be the poster boy of family values by any stretch. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so you had this, you know, evangelicals are betraying their faith or they're holding their noses. Um, but uh, if you look to the history, if you look at family values evangelicalism, family values politics, which is what I do in this book, I came to see that really at the heart of family values politics is uh white patriarchal authority. And mm-hmm. um, uh, what that looks like, if you look historically in the um, context of the Cold War in particular, against the backdrop of the civil rights movement, backdrop of the rise of feminism, and then particularly against the backdrop of the Vietnam War and the anti-war movement, uh, this reassertion of white patriarchal authority and um, the ideal of the protector, the protector that will use violence when necessary in order to pursue, quote unquote, righteousness, who will do what needs to be done. The ends will justify the means. This kind of conception of, quote unquote, traditional masculinity, of testosterone-driven, uh, aggressive Christian manhood. If, if you put that at the center of family values politics, then a lot of other things start to fall into place. And then when you listen to the language that many evangelicals were using to explain their support for Trump, it was, he was going to protect Christianity. He said so himself. He is the strong man. He will defend Mm -hmm. us and our interests. And that's how I realized there is a long tradition here. Uh, There are deep affinities between the the values of conservative white evangelicals and and Donald Trump and that's how we can understand not only evangelical the evangelical vote in 2016 but the persistent resilient support through thick and thin over the next 4 years and through the election of of 20 uh uh or sorry 2016 through the election of 2020 yeah, and it's it's baffling. Although now that you explain it, uh, I do understand. Yeah, you know, I think I told you this. I, I worked at Focus on the Family for, gosh, about ten years, and and overlapped uh, with John Eldridge. And obviously, I live in Colorado Springs, um, so John's ministry, Wild at Heart, is here in town. Uh, one of my ba- best friends actually still works there, um, and it, it's been. Interesting trying to navigate these waters personally as well as spiritually with um, a, a mainstream group of, of white evangelicals in particular that have adopted, as you said, this kind of militant Jesus. I actually just went on their website um, a couple of days ago just to see if they're still kind of pushing this. And there's something still on there that says Jesus was not the poster child for pacifism. Yes. This is still on their site. and. Yes. You know, for me, someone who I came to Christ through nonviolence, I, I actually walked away from fundamentalism because I I began to see that Jesus and God actually are nonviolent, and and I think it's ludicrous to me to to paint a picture of Jesus. Um, uh, as you said, this militant warrior. So, gosh, we could we could do an entire podcast just on that because that's <laughs> in and of itself pretty heretical to me. Yeah. Um, but how does John Wayne come into this? Like, I get the Jesus thing. Now, <laughs> tell us about good old John Wayne. I mean, I grew up watching his movies. He's this great hero, you know. How, right. how does he fit into this? <laughs> So I did not set out to write a book about John Wayne, <laughs> and I'm as surprised as anyone that that's the title of this book. But, uh, you know, when I picked up Aldridge's book um, all those years ago, one of the most startling things to me wasn't just like this this militant content, but 
uh, how um, how few Bible verses there were, or not just you know the Bible mm. verses that I did find in the book were were you know kind of uh, cherry picked, and mm. you know for for a, a a discussion of Christian manhood, the inspiration wasn't primarily drawn from the scriptures, and you know these are self professed Bible believing Christians, right? Evangelical self identity here. Uh, instead, right. uh, it, uh, Eldridge was looking to to Hollywood heroes. Uh, his favorite, of course, was uh, Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie mm. Braveheart. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, Jesus and Mel Gibson's William Wallace from the movie Braveheart doesn't make for quite the the same, you know, catchy title, <laughs> um, but but it could have worked. Um, and close, close. and uh, it, you know, it wasn't just um, William Wallace, but you know, um, mythical warriors and um, American soldiers and you know, military generals, and then uh, not in Aldridge, but many other books, because of, of course, the success of Aldridge's book. Um, spawn this kind of cottage industry of copycat books of, uh, you know, there are a dime a dozen now. And, and you know, the, the less successful ones still, you know, sold in the five figures and the more successful ones in the hundreds of thousands. And wow. so, mm. uh, and when I looked at those, the same thing, like they were drawing on these kind of mythical conceptions of manhood and Christian and then calling that Christian manhood. And, uh, you know, in Hollywood was, was a place where they would go. And and, and so John Wayne just kept popping up. And at first I thought, oh, you got to be kidding me, right? And But just again and again, <laughs> we all know, as Eric Metaxas writes in Seven Men, that John Wayne is the icon of American manhood, by which he also means Christian manhood. And, mm. um, and that just struck me as significant because John Wayne, of course, not an evangelical, <laughs> not a poster boy of family values, Christianity. <laughs> um, and so that was really interesting for me to explore. Um, and you can see some of the obvious parallels then between John Wayne and somebody like Donald Trump that, um, paradoxically, the men who best exemplify this militant, quote-unquote, Christian masculinity are those who have not been deeply formed by Christian values, by biblical values, Mm. by things like the fruit of the Spirit. Mm. Uh, And so you you need to go outside of Christian formation to find these models of rugged, aggressive, even violent masculinity that you are then upholding as the ideal of Christian manhood. And that doesn't just shape your conception of manhood, it will also shape your conception ultimately of Christianity itself. And that's the corruption of the faith that I'm talking about. So it's more like culture influencing faith rather than your yes. faith influencing your culture. Uh, very much, very much. And and John Wayne is not, uh, I mean, it, it makes sense when you look at, at history and, you know, as this book kind of goes back to the Cold War era, um, uh, opposition to civil rights movement, opposition to feminism, and especially um, uh, the Vietnam War and uh, evangelicals' support for the war and opposition to the anti-war movement. And John Wayne himself, both as as a person as and as a politically active person in the 1960s and 1970s, was um, kind of a leader in this uh, conservative right-wing politics, supporter of Barry Goldwater, supporter of Phyllis Schlafly, supporter of Ronald Reagan, but also on screen, he represented this um, kind of throwback American manhood uh, from you know the heroic uh, cowboy hero, um, uh, you know, subduing Native Americans to uh, mm. Sands of Iwo Jima, um, subduing uh, you know. Um, Japanese, and then to the Green Berets, where he could take this heroic myth of a, of the American soldier and play that out on the battlefields of Vietnam. And so he symbol he symbolized on screen and actually lived the conservative politics in in his own person. So in in so many ways, John Wayne makes perfect sense as this mm. icon of conservative American masculinity. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, we just finished doing a little mini-series on purity culture and power and patriarchy within white American evangelicalism especially. Um, and it just, it after looking into them, it really feels like those three things just form the very heart of white American evangelicalism today. Um, and, and it definitely influences then the political and personal expressions of evangelicalism. 
So I'm curious, in your research, did purity culture or kind of that idea of how your sexuality ties into family values, did that come up in any of your research? Absolutely. It's it's right at the center of things. So, you know, if you're talking about masculinity, you're also going to be talking about femininity, um, particularly when you look at white evangelicalism, because uh, in in uh, the Cold War era, this idea of gender difference was hugely important to evangelicals. Uh, this was their conception of biblical gender roles. As you know, Dobson liked to say, uh, you know, men and women are different in every cell of their bodies. Hmm. And by different, they meant he meant opposite. And so hmm. the man was the uh, provider and protector, the rugged, testosterone-driven, you know, violent um, uh and and sexually aggressive of uh, mm. um, uh, kind of half of humanity, and then women were everything opposite of that. So passive, submissive, uh, seductive, um, but um, uh, you know just just absolute opposites. And so when I started looking at um, discussions of sexuality, I read a lot of sex manuals, evangelical sex manuals from the sixties and seventies. Um, oh. They were very much a thing and bestsellers, and uh, you know. The LaHaye's, I, I spent some time talking about their book, The Act of Marriage. And um, it, it was really startling what I was reading um, when it came to what patriarchy looked like in the bedroom. Um, because it, mm. uh, like you said, it's, it's personal and it's political. And so male leadership, male authority um, extended, you know, all the way up to the top uh, in terms of government, in terms of, you know, church leadership, and then it also, you know, in very intimate relationships. And so I was reading about how, you know, God gave men to have these, you know, um, aggressive sex drives. And so it's up to women to protect virtue through their modesty if they're not married. And as soon as they are married, through their um, meeting their husband's every sexual need. Um, and that's just the way God designed things. So women must, to sub- must submit to their husband's sexually and spiritually and socially. Um, and when you're when you're reading this, you can see like, oh, this is not good. I can see where this <laughs> is going to bring us, you know, especially reading these things in in the wake of Me Too, Church Too, and mm-hmm. in really knowing the long history of sexual abuse within evangelical communities, which which ends up being, you know, the final chapter of Jesus and John Wayne. Uh, but but yes, the the history makes it very plain that there are, are expectations that are um, promoted of what, uh, of, around sexuality, around purity, and around um, patriarchal authority that are packaged and sold as Christianity. This is the way to be uh, an obedient Christian woman. This mm. is the way to be an obedient Christian man. And these have been inculcated in generations of evangelicals. Before purity culture was a thing, we had these sex manuals, and then we had other, you know, teachings on sexuality. And you had Josh McDowell. And then you had the rise of, you know, the real purity culture, purity culture. Mm. And, uh, you know, it, it, so it's it's absolutely been a part of this. And many people have been discipled into this. And for many people, uh, it's very hard to separate uh, this purity culture and purity ideal, very you know, gendered from just basic Christian Christianity because that's the way it's been sold. Hmm. Yeah, we we posted on social media about it, and I definitely had quite a few women who are Christians push back and say, "You can't like, how could you possibly question this? Because yeah. this is how we are." good Christian women. And yes. it was like, oh, I don't know even how to respond to that. <laughs> right, right. Well, and and I think there's uh, something almost sinister about the uh, connection that this has with Donald Trump, in particular mm-hmm. in the imaginations of a generation of older white uh, evangelicals who have been formed in purity culture and patriarchy and have been in some ways either sexually repressed or sexually malformed. I think that they like, and and this is my opinion, but I think that they like the fact that here's a guy that's not only a bully, he is sexually aggressive. I mean, he has a list of uh, playboy wives. He uh, he he is blatant about his extramarital affairs, and and I think that they saw in him 
something that they actually wanted to do themselves. And, and I, that's a that's a fairly twisted view of that, I understand. But I really believe that there's something there that he was not only um, a a political leader that they could look up to, but he embodied a, a sexual ethic that I think is a direct representation to some of this that man, it just seems really twisted to me. So yeah, yeah, it definitely uh, aligns with the um, kind of ideal of powerful, rugged masculinity. Um, because mm-hmm. again, the sexual drive is part of that. And if you believe that God, again, filled men with testosterone so that they have the aggression that they need to use, their duty to use to protect faith, family, and nation, there are certain side effects to that, right? You're going to mm-hmm. not always have control over your you know, sexual um, urges. Uh, but that is, I mean, they might say that's not ideal, you know, get yourself under control if you can, but it also is a sign that you have been doubly blessed with this, you know, testosterone and that, um, for, for so long they had been, you know, denigrating feminists and, um, the, the politically correct and blaming liberals and secular humanists for emasculating American men and our boys and all of this. And so when you're just kind of steeped in that rhetoric, and then you look at somebody like Trump, he is clearly not, um, constrained by political correctness or any correctness. He is wild. He's out of control. And that's what you've been saying is kind of, you know, most men are not living that out in their own lives. You're right. Um, Their wives wouldn't put up with it. (laughs) That's not, that's not, but that's somehow deep inside their conception of the alpha male and the man Mm. who has the authority to lead. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, gosh. All right. So we've talked a little bit about the the militant masculinity that has led to this moment in uh, American evangelical history. We've also talked about patriarchy. Uh, I want to talk in particular about kind of two things, uh, Christian nationalism and then the racial components yeah. that 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 lead to that. I mean, when, when all of us saw the uh, January 6th siege on the Capitol, you couldn't help but miss two, uh, couldn't help but see two things. One, wow, lots of white people. And, and two, Jesus was, was everywhere. Mm -hmm. So how does Christian nationalism and maybe in particular, uh, a, a racial motivation lead to and enable this moment that we're all living right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And I'm glad you put these two together, Christian nationalism and race, because when we're talking about Christian nationalism as it manifests in white evangelicalism, it is white Christian nationalism. So this is the idea that, you know, America was a Christian nation, that God gave a special blessing and it, it was founded as a Christian nation and it needs to be restored to that original goodness. Um, and so the idea of Christian nationalism has this kind of declension narrative as part of it, uh, at least the way it's used today of Christian America, uh, that things were great and then things um got not so great. And so we need hmm. to make things great again. Uh, now, where did things really go wrong? Um, often it's the 1960s. So if you just think about that narrative, right? You had 60s, you, that's when you have feminism and the anti-war movement, but you also have the civil rights movement. Mm. And if you just think about this narrative, Christian America, everything was great. And then the 60s happened and we need to make things great again. That only <laughs> makes sense if you are a white Christian, right? Mm, it makes yeah, no exactly. sense otherwise. So that's really important to recognize, but it's rarely stated in those terms, almost never, right? The, the whiteness there is is largely invisible to the people who are who are promoting it, but it's very visible to anybody who's not white. So, so Christian nationalism, as evangelicals embrace it, is uh, a white racial identity uh, and political vision. Uh, and then, when we look at the history, we can see how, um, as evangelicals kind of united, this this Christian nationalist identity was was right at the core of their political values as they started to coalesce in the 60s and 70s as as a partisan political movement. It's not that they weren't political before, but it's during this era that we have the the partisan realignment and we have the rise of the religious right and kind of the the emergence of the the modern um, partisanship of Democrats and Republicans and so on. Um, And and evangelicals are right at the center of this. And um, 
when we look at their political mobilization, um, particularly kind of fundamentalists who had claimed, oh, we're separatists, we're not going to engage in politics so much, um, it was the issue of desegregation that really riled up a lot of conservative Protestants, particularly in the South. Uh, and they fought for their rights. Uh, first, they, they established uh, white flight academies, uh, Christian schools, uh, mm-hmm. to maintain uh, segregation for their children. And then they rallied around the defense of those institutions when the mm-hmm. IRS came after them. And that is part of the history of the, the religious right, a critical part. And that's a history that evangelicals do not tell themselves. And they will point instead, particularly to the issue of abortion. Um, Abortion is an important mobilizing issue. Um, how important uh, is is an interesting question. Anecdotally, extremely important. But if you look at survey data, it's less important than a lot of other issues. Um, but historically speaking, it came later. It came after uh, opposition to desegregation and already started to really mobilize conservative evangelicals politically and move them towards uh, the kind of morphing uh, Republican Party into the religious right. And so that's Mm -hmm. just historical facts that we need to reckon with. And that is a story that evangelicals do not tell themselves about themselves. I've just been shaking my head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is – I think what I love about um, not only the conversation we're having but but your book is, you know, you're you're motivated as a historian. You are simply putting together the facts and the cause and the the outcomes of some very real movements in history. You know, this isn't hearsay. This isn't opinion. This is a research-based argument that gives so much language to so much of the pain that I think another generation is feeling uh, for how we have all been formed as Americans and, and as Christians. So, that is what uh, it really stands out to me is this is a historical approach, uh, not an emotional approach. And you cannot deny these facts. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why uh, the book has, uh, has gained such a, a large hearing. I think even within evangelical communities, um, you know, there are some implicit theological claims probably that frame the book. Um, comes out a little in the intro, a little bit in the conclusion, but by and large, this is a work of history, and mm-hmm. it's um, it's a history that is on the one hand intimately familiar to many evangelical readers. So I I get letters every day uh, from evangelical readers. This started the week the book came out and it has not yet let up. Um, wow. And most of these, these letters are something like, and by letters, I mean electronic, so messages. I've gotten a few paper letters, but mostly, you know, different messages saying, um, this is the story of my life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like they can just, and then they, they map it out. Like I was here, I was there. I have these books on my shelves. Like this is my, my life but I didn't understand how all these pieces fit together. And I think that's what history can do is it can put your story in the context of these larger stories. Definitely. I think one of the craziest things this in the last, you know, year because of COVID and then um, all the problems that we've had in America, like with George Floyd and all the other killings and, and the riots and all that for me has been, I've had time to learn more and it's it's been like wait why wasn't I ever taught about this event or why wasn't I ever taught about this movement or I read a book called Virgin Nation that talked a lot about what you're talking about maybe you read it as part of your research and it was just it was mind-blowing it was like how why is it that we were never even taught this or even like the people who taught me my faith didn't even know about it that's how like you said, we just don't tell ourselves that narrative. So it's it's yeah. really just it's frustrating because it's like once you have that bigger picture, you can have a a more honest faith, I guess. Um, but when you're not told that, you just believe whatever you're taught and you go along with it. And you might even be super outspoken about it. And then I feel like that's how I am. I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I used to support those things. So I'm I'm just so grateful to you for writing this book because I think we just we all need our eyes open to the history and and the influences of how we got to 
white evangelicalism in 2021. Um, I just want to briefly go back um, and kind of talk about sexuality again, because it seems like the white evangelical movement has like almost an obsession with sexuality. Yes. Um, So what was the most disturbing thing that you uncovered when you were researching all this? Uh, I mean, you're right about uh, almost obsession uh, with sexuality, with sex, and um, and with gender, uh, right? That like even now, and you know, all evangelicals read this like, thank you so much. This now, but help us. What is um, you know, give us a, a new Christian masculinity that we can work with? Mm. And I'm like, yeah, um, let's just decenter that question for a little bit. Let's just mm. talk about. Christianity, right? You know, so so there's this right. obsession, and and that that has for so long been again how people, you know, like like the comments you got on, you know, from from Christian women, like how 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 is this not just Christianity? So you're taking away our Christianity. So there's a <laughs> lot of deconstruction that mm-hmm. has to happen. Uh, the most disturbing things that I came across uh, were the the stories of abuse. Uh, that mm. stretch back decades, and to see mm. how, um, and and not just the the acts of the perpetrators, which are of course horrifying, um, but actually were less interesting to me than the responses of the bystanders, of the members of communities, mm. of families, of churches, and here we see consistent and horrifying patterns of evangelicals who would deny the existence of abuse, um, who would blame victims, even young girls, for seducing grown Mm. men who are preying upon them, uh, who would defend and protect the predator, uh, who would circle the wagons um, for the sake of protecting the witness of the church and throw victims under the bus. Over that and sounds over like the Ravi Zacharias again. thing going on. It, that is just like, you know, the, the you know, chapter 218 of the <laughs> same story. And right. I mean, he was on my radar a little bit. Um, I mean, the truth is, like I said, I, I started uh, the research for this book more than 15 years ago, set it aside, but I just paid attention to um, stories of abuse in these circles. And um, I, I started to keep files on them. And um, and these stories have been out there for a long time. They came into the public in um, a couple of years back with Me Too and Church mm. Too. But I, when I, I'd already decided to write the book before that moment. And one of the first things I did actually was to consult with a lawyer because the vast majority of these stories were on blogs um, by survivors and survivor advocates. And I knew that this needed to be a part of, of this book. And I wasn't sure what my liability was going to be. Mm. And then with uh, Me Too and Church Too, one after another of these stories got picked up by um, national media or regional or local media. And so then it was a, a lot safer for me to use these stories. But I want to give a huge shout out to the survivors themselves mm. and to their advocates and because they were the ones who testified early and often and at great personal cost to um, the abuses and and the complicity of, of evangelicals in, in perpetuating and condoning these abuses. And mm-hmm. so, um, I mean, that was honestly heartbreaking to read these stories. And I will say that only a only a fraction of the stories that I gathered made it into this book. Uh, that last chapter used to be twice as long. And I just needed to cut it down. And um, so I, I kind of limited myself to if your name has already appeared in this book as part of the narrative and you end up getting caught up in scandal, then you earn a place into this last chapter. All of the other <laughs> abuses and scandals um, are on the cutting room floor, but there are so many. And again, it's mm. these patterns that are absolutely horrifying to read. Mm. Gosh. And, and we wonder why, you know, Empty the Pews is, you know, continues to trend yeah. on Twitter. And we wonder why a generation of thoughtful, compassionate individuals want nothing to do with with this movement. And, and I think that um, one of the motivating factors probably uh, for you, I'm going to assume, but also for us as we're talking about these things is we care about the church yeah. and and we, we care and love the bride of Christ. And when she looks nothing like 
the founder of our faith, then we have a duty to speak out, um, yeah. not not just about the witness of the church, but about all the victims exactly. um, that are just laying in a wake behind this entire movement. Yes. Um, the other thing that 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 kind of coalesces in all of this too, at least that I picked up in in reading your book, is the pervasive notion of fear as almost a defining characteristic of the evangelical movement, which is is a little bit ironic when you think about it. I think I think the most repetitive command in the Bible is don't be afraid. Exactly. Um, and yet fear plays this I'm, I'm guessing, so maybe that's the question. It seems like fear plays a great role in shaping the evangelical imagination. Is that something that you would say is true? And then, yeah. and where, do, where, and how do we see fear played out in this? Yes, yes. So again, you know, to understand evangelical politics, a lot of observers would kind of say, you know. Um, so take, for example, 2016, that they, you know, were kind of pushed into the arms of a man like Donald Trump because they were so afraid. Uh, we see demographic decline. We see concerns over religious liberty. We, you know, have this perceived marginalization and all of these things. They were so very afraid. What choice did they have? Um and when I look to the history, that um, didn't really hold up. Um, while that may have been true in individual cases, when I looked at patterns, when I looked at individuals and organizations and institutions, what I often saw was that the powerful leader, so somebody like Jerry Falwell Sr. or Mark Driscoll is another great example, actively worked to stoke fear. Mm. To, to just to to stoke fear in the hearts of their followers, like be afraid of what is out there, be afraid of that church down the street, be afraid of of um, heresy, be afraid of Muslims, be afraid of liberals, of you know, feminists, fill in the blank, actively stoking that fear in order to um, draw their followers to them because they promise protection. Um, and so rather than seeing kind of militancy as the last resort, the result of these very real kind of organically occurring fears, I came to see that militancy often predated the fears, if you're looking at the leaders, huh. and that they act, it, it required fear. It required the perpetuation, the manufacturing of fear constantly in order to justify their militancy, in order to bolster their own power. And once that clicked for me, uh, I, I, so many pieces fell into place. Again, that doesn't necessarily speak to the individual. The individual, you know, kind of uh, evangelical may well have genuine, genuine fear of radical Islam because they have been told about how scary it is and how they and their family are direct, directly targeted, mm -hmm. uh, right? But that is a manufactured fear when you when you trace it back and see who is promoting this fear. And it, it, in that story that I tell in, in the book, uh, you know, the, the popularity of these um, ex-Muslim terrorists throughout the, the evangelical world, um, the speaking circuit, you know, um, sponsored by organizations like Focus on the Family, um, mm -hmm. they, were, they were total frauds, complete and total frauds. And they continue to be promoted, and some still are to this day, even though they are known to be total frauds. Hmm. Wow. Gosh. Gosh. So uh, it's a simple question, but how do we change the conversation? Um, because as Melanie said earlier, this is personal as well as public. I, I still have conversations with family members who are convinced that the election was stolen, yeah. that, you know, Joe Biden's going to cancel Christmas, um, that religious liberty is going to go away, that the transgenders are going to take over. And it, it, it's, it seems like it's, okay, well, we, we now have one more group to fear, one more group to marginalize, one more group to oppress. How do we help white evangelicals in particular, not picking on them, but how do we help them move past fear and culture warring and anger and division in, in this just painful world that we're living in? Yeah. 
I had the luxury of 300 some pages and then a lot of footnotes. So <laughs> this is always a hard question where it's like, well, you know, I'm such a believer in the power of history, that history, mm-hmm. history shows, like you said, like this is just quotes and and everything is footnoted and, and some early readers, conservative evangelicals um, testified on Twitter to the power of this book because they were, they were dubious. They were, they were ready to reject it. And they, they're like, so I started looking up her footnotes. I started looking up these quotes. I was like, there's mm. no way Billy Graham said that. And guess what? You can pull up the mm. New York Times article online in their archive. And oh my gosh, he did. And it was even worse <laughs> than I thought, you know? So wow, yeah. I, I think that there is a real power to history. Um, and and that's what I've been able to kind of marshal in in this book. When you're just having a kind of one-off conversation or so, it gets, it gets tougher because uh, we're working with different realities now. We have such different sources of information, such mm. different understandings of what evangelicalism is, of what America is. Um, So it's fraught. There there are no shortcuts. Um, What I will say is I have, I mean, through the publication of this book and, and watching its reception within evangelicalism particularly, I've um, been very surprised and heartened to see a different sort of um, kind of, of sorting happening uh, within evangelical communities for so long, it was kind of conservative or not conservative. And if you cross mm-hmm. a line on LGBTQ, if you cross a line on um, on you know maybe patriarchy, you're out. Um, hmm. You just ask. Jen Hatmaker, how that went, you know, or yeah, so, exactly. so this bound, <laughs> right, boundary keeping. Um, and what has been fascinating to me is with Jesus and John Wayne, which is a harsh book, um, it is being embraced by conservative white evangelicals that I never would have imagined would hmm. um, be open and, and incredibly humble to receive this critique, um, and particularly conservative white evangelical men. And, um, and so I'm really looking to them and I'm watching them in their spaces, in their churches, some are pastors, some are not in their organizations. Some of them are still deeply embedded in these places. And I'm watching some of them have the courage to, to speak out to, Hmm. to, to people who trust them, right? It's very hard for anybody from the outside. Um, however, that outside is defined, right? Usually very uh, generously, like anybody who's not one of us is on the outside and you don't (laughs) trust them like that. That's part of this, this mentality. It's, it's part of what they've been taught. Um, but for people from the inside to say, Hey guys, um, we need to wrestle with this. And, uh, you know, this is not, yeah, this is not the Christianity that I profess. This is not mm. the Jesus of the Gospels. Let's take a look at this together, and let's try to let's let's just take a few steps back, and then look at the scriptures and decide what part of this this whole package that we've been carrying is not actually biblical. And in those conversations, I'm watching them happen, and it's immensely encouraging. Um, they don't come without risk, and sometimes they they come with great cost. Um, but the fact that people are courageous enough to have them right now is is really encouraging to me. Mm. Well, actually, beyond that, I'm curious what else gives you hope about faith and the future of faith? Because I'm sure, mm-hmm. you know, in doing all this research, you had your head in junk. I mean, you were just buried yeah. in all the grossness that is our Christian legacy right now. And so I'm wondering if there's anything else that you uncovered or or any perspective that you saw that really just gives you hope for the future of faith that we can stop that legacy and yeah. start a new one. Yeah, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one, uh, my favorite quote in the book, I think, is Rachel Den Hollander's uh, quote about um, uh, uh, she, of course, was the first witness in the Larry Nassar case and then went on to um, uh, raise issues of sexual abuse uh, within evangelical circles and um, right. and very, you know, incredibly powerful work in that respect. And, and I quote her uh, in the book where she says, uh, Jesus does not need your protection. And she's talking about these mm-hmm. patterns I was talking, uh, describing of, of evangelicals covering up sexual abuse and you're trying to protect the, the witness of the church. Mm-hmm. And she's like, no. God does not need your protection. God only asks for our obedience. And what does obedience look like? It's it's doing justice. 
So, you know, I'm not trying to protect the image of evangelicalism. I'm not even trying to protect the image of Christianity. I'm just trying to tell the truth um, mm-hmm. and and telling the truth and doing justice. That is what is asked of us. And if our faith is in God, God can take care of things and we are called to be faithful. Um, so I think there's some hope there. And then there's also hope in that um, evangelicals tend to uh, think of themselves again as they are the faithful remnant. They are the most faithful Christians. They are kind of the default Christians. And so there, there's this huge burden that comes with that uh, kind of self-perception and privilege. Uh, but that's false. Uh, you know, they are <laughs> they are Christians and they are seeking to follow Christ. Uh, you know, which Christ, what that looks like, a whole other conversation, but they do not own Christianity. They are not the only followers of Christ in, in mm. this country or in this world. And so I think another, another really important thing for evangelicals who feel really disheartened right now is the reminder that, the, that Christianity does not depend on white evangelicals. And mm. that, you know, rather than, I, I talk with a lot of convicted white evangelicals who are like, help us fix this. Let's get started now. What do we do? And I I push back against that a a bit. You know, first of all, have we fully, you know, grasped what needs fixing? Are Mm -hmm. we the ones best positioned to do the fixing? Are we ready? Um, Do we have the leaders? Are our current leaders the people who ought to be doing this? Maybe I'm saying not. (laughs) If they brought us to this point, Um, just, just step down. And maybe what you need to be doing is um, listening to the voices that you and your communities have long excluded. Um, and that means crossing racial lines. Uh, that mm-hmm. means listening to those that you have deemed um, uh, you know, heretical or not orthodox enough or not pure mm-hmm. enough. That means opening yourself to the larger body of Christ and just listening and learning and finding that Christianity may in fact have been flourishing outside the walls of your evangelical megachurch. Uh, and, 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 and so instead of trying to fix your church and make it bigger and better, maybe what you need to do is is walk away for a time and mm. listen with humility and learn. And maybe the answers are going to be elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Gosh, that's, that's really good. I, and I think, you know, um, as I have traveled internationally over the last several years, that's something that has been really uh, clear to me is there is a different version of Christianity out yeah. there. Um, and a lot of the Christians, specifically in the global South, are asking, you know, what what is wrong with you guys? <laughs> you know, <we're, laughs> this is um, we don't we don't act like that, and we don't think like this. Um, so the ability to to look and learn and listen and and maybe stop assuming that it's ours to lead yes. is a beautiful mm. a beautiful commendation. Okay, we want to do one last quick thing with you and then we'll let you go. If if it's okay with you, we would love to ask you just a series of rapid fire questions. Um and it's just, you know, you you've not been prepared for this. We understand. <laughs> so just answer as quick as possible. Okay. Is that that be okay? Of course, let's try it. All right. Okay, here we go. So first question, is there anything we should have asked you that we failed to? No, you're great. Well, that feels nice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, You posted on Twitter recently about your new book, which is called Live, Laugh, Love, and you said it's kind of like the female version of Jesus and John Wayne. So when does that come out? I oh want to read gosh. it now. Yes. Uh, so it's so much fun. Uh, my deadline is two years from now, so it won't be out until 2023, probably soonest, uh, which seems like a long time, but it's already <sighs> keeping me up at night, um, panicking about that deadline. <laughs> but it's a lot of fun. Super fun. I can't wait. Awesome. Okay. Who is your favorite evangelical tough guy and why? <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, my favorite. Uh I should be saying Carmen this week, but no. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'm I'm just so fascinated with William Wallace, Mel Gibson's William Wallace. Mm. I watched the movie again, and I thought, oh my goodness, there is so much there. It is so perfect and so terrible. <laughs> yeah, you know, I met Mel Gibson at Focus on the Family when he was, uh, you know, doing his little Passion yes. of the Christ tour. Um, 
So I'm just going to say I had a moment with Mel Gibson uh, in the men's restroom at Focus on the Family. Oh, we'll, leave, we'll just leave it at that. Okay? You know, I'll, I'll be interviewing you for the the next edition because I would really like that Great. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's do a whole chapter with just me yes. and Mel. <laughs> All right. Uh, what is your favorite thing to do in your free time, if you ever have any? that is oh my goodness i have none i'm terrible i have three kids and i have a teaching job and i write books and so that's my life um my favorite thing oh i um let's see over a pandemic my 12 year old 12 year old daughter and i watched um did the Buffy marathon. Uh, so that was kind of fun. Mm. And lately we've moved wow. into uh, Scrabble, which is um, kind of our pastime. So I have no hobbies. I have no like anything interesting <laughs> to say. It's really like, what can I do to spend some time with any of my three kids? And that's what I will be doing when, if I'm not writing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that love though. You. That's beautiful. All right. What's your favorite movie and why is it Rudy? <laughs> Oh my gosh. So I ended up at Notre Dame as a graduate student, um, but I had lived in Tallahassee for a time. My dad got his PhD at Florida State. So it was actually, I felt like a traitor for the first years um, because I was a Florida State (laughs) Seminole fan and uh, Rudy. Yeah, it was. And and that was Lou Holtz. And it was it was rough. But I I came around eventually. It helped that that Notre Dame (laughs) team uh, declined and they were really pathetic. And so I could actually feel sorry for them and then become a fan. But that's I digress. Um, (laughs) So so yeah, Rudy, Rudy was always just a bit bizarre. Um, uh, do I still have to answer the favorite movie? Let me think. Um, I'm totally blanking on favorite movie because I don't really watch movies anymore. My favorite recent series, I'm just a big fan of The Good Place um, for mm, all yeah. the reasons. And so so that just popped into my mind. Perfect. That's Perfect. great. Well, thank you so much for this, Dr. Dumay. I feel like I learned so much just listening to you and I could have listened to you for much longer. Uh, but for anyone who's interested, where can they find more info about you, your books, and anything else that you're up to? I'm very present on social media, on uh, Twitter and, uh, and Facebook. I have a Facebook author page. So it's at KK Dumay, K-K-D-U-M-E-Z. Uh, I also have a website, kristendumay.com, and I post a lot of my writings uh, there. It's kind of a resource page. Awesome. Dr. Dumay, this has been just so enjoyable. We're, we're, we're honored and we, we've been humbled to, to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you both. I really enjoyed this. And yes, we'll be following up about Mel Gibson. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what an eye-opening interview. And seriously, her book is amazing. If you haven't read it, we highly recommend it. Thanks for listening today. Next week, we are chatting with the Joshua Harris. That's right, the author of I Kiss Dating Goodbye himself. And we're talking with him about his experience in evangelicalism, homeschooling, and eventually recanting and renouncing most, if not all, of what he once so strongly believed and promoted. You definitely don't want to miss it, so make sure to subscribe. For show notes, head to holyheretics.org, where we've also linked to all of Dr. Dumais' information. And if you're enjoying this podcast, would you take a moment to either tell someone you know about it or to leave a review on Apple Podcasts? Both of those really help us out, help us to find more people who would benefit from this content, and we would really appreciate it. Thanks so much. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society. Music is by Faith and Foxholes, and sound engineering is by Joshua Mudge.